Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Welcome back to the Coming Clean podcast. I am your host, Stephen Perkins. This is usually a show about solutions, about positivity, about optimism. And I say usually because we're going to break that trend today by focusing on the problems and what really ticks us off about the environmental movement. I am joined with my friend, ACC CEO, and uh, a trusted co-complainer at times, Danielle Butcher-Friends. Danielle, how are you? Stephen, I'm doing well. I have to say I was very excited when you came to me with this idea, and I'm ready to rant. Yeah, I, I think... You know, we do a lot of market research uh, at ACC about what's missing, and what we found overwhelmingly is that on the internet there is a uh, a lack, a shortage of complaining and 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 negative observations. So we're going to try and help fill that space here today. And so if if you've been listening to the show, we've been talking about our new climate rants segment. We have invited anybody listening to join us on this. You can always email your audio message or video clip to comingcleanatacc.eco. Um, but I think it's also good to lead by example and to give you some ideas of the things you can rant about. And so I've got my list, and uh, Danny, I know that you have yours. Um, and so as the guest, I, I want to kick it over to you for your first one, and then we can discuss uh, if, if that works for you. Yeah, let's do it. I came prepared like it is Festivus. Uh, sure. So where do we want to start? Do we want to start with the silly stuff? Do we want to start with the real stuff? Let's start silly and then we can get into some of the more real stuff. All right. Well, my first question is there's a, there's a headline that's been circulating on the internet today from the LA Times, the Los Angeles Times, with the headline, How Throwing Soup at the Mona Lisa Can Help Fight Climate Change. And I just have to say, on the topic of disruptive activism, if people are so convinced that this tactic works, how many ounces of soup until we're done? Like, how many ounces of soup do we have to throw until this problem is solved, until we've raised awareness? I don't understand it. If I have to see another headline about priceless art having food, eggs, soup thrown at it, I might just scream. Okay, so... Was that indeed a real headline? Because you never know if those things are Photoshopped nowadays. Do we verify? From what fact I, check? From what I, well, I, I think this is one of those things where people are like, the satire couldn't write itself any better. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I, I fully imagine that the LA Times would put something up like that. I have two, because that was also on my list of throwing soup at the Mona Lisa. I have two strands of thought. Number one, um, there is this interesting anti capitalism. Uh, climate activists crossover that often happens. And I think the messages that get shared during these soup throwing moments uh, are often anti-capitalist. How are we, but, but we're just propping up Campbell's soup stock at this point. I, I mean, this well, is and like- the other, With this protest in particular, with the soup on the Mona Lisa, I believe what they were originally protesting was sustainability in the agricultural sector. So if you're protesting food waste and doing things sustainably, I don't really see the connection in wasting food to stop wasting food. Right. The other thing that um, has come up a few times, because for those who don't know, 
French farmers are protesting across the country. And this was sort of in connection with that. And, um, uh, you know, French, the, the challenging thing is that I generally talk ill about France, but they've got two things that I really admire. Number one, they have a lot of nuclear power plants, and that's awesome. Number two, when their people protest, they go hard. Uh, like they, they throw mud and stuff on government buildings and, you know, but I have a general issue with the Mona Lisa. Number one, and the art people will cancel me for this. I don't think it's like that impressive of an art piece, uh, especially when you see all the other art that's in that room. Uh, but I also just don't get the connection between like the priceless art thing and trying to deface that. And by the way, it's behind glass. You're not actually damaging the art. They just seem to have lost the plot. I'm just shocked that these museums, these stewards of priceless art, haven't come up with some sort of rapid response protocol to stop these things from happening. We have seen enough food protests in art museums to know that this is something that protesters uh, plan to do. So why don't we stop them from doing it? Um, I don't know. I it just seems like they're abandoning their responsibility to be custodians of this art. They could probably mount like fire hoses around it and just, anyways. All right. So, so, you know, if we're talking about the new year ins and outs out this year, we need to make throwing food at art because you just look silly. Um, I want to, one of the things on my list, which is also sort of silly. And, um, I want to preface this by saying I'm a proud capitalist. I believe in the markets. I believe in businesses innovating. I have really started to have it with, it's almost like greenwashing consumerism. So the big craze over the past couple of months is Stanley Cups or Hydro Flask or all these different things, right? We're, we're obsessed as water with water now, and you have to have your beautiful $100 thing to store water in. Um and so now, you know, it's come out that the Stanley Cups maybe have some lead in them, which might explain why people go so crazy over them all of a sudden. But I think the bigger issue here is that there seems to be a message that to be a good environmentally cautious person, you have to go out and buy a ton of these reusable water bottles or a ton of the, I, I saw this morning on TikTok, like, these these new uh, farmers market tote bags that are fifty dollars, and of course it's by some influencer. And I'm kind of tired of all the consumerism around sustainability. Your thoughts on that? I totally agree, and I have two main thoughts. One, I think this is very millennial driven, and the reason I say that is you look at the way that millennials um, have become consumers, and there's a very distinct branding and visual identity that has been catered toward millennials. And I think the Stanley Cups feed into that perfectly. The hydroflasks feed into that perfectly. So this is something we can definitely blame the millennials for. Um, but I would just raise the point that the most sustainable options that you have are the ones that you already own. So if you have a mason jar, that's going to be more sustainable to use than going out and buying a $70 Stanley Cup. Um, there is this idea that we have to have the latest and greatest, coolest products all the time. And there are instances where upgrading might make sense and might be more sustainable in the long run. But for the vast majority of products, that's just not the case. 
Yeah, it, I've I've now seen on Facebook Marketplace um, these cups going for hundreds of dollars, and I don't know if it's a parody because Facebook Marketplace often has jokesters on there, but um, it just has seemed wild. I've got uh, an IKEA bag that I've been using for quite some time. That's a great tote bag, uh, and it it it, it almost I, I think there's a parallel, and you've written about this about fast fashion uh, and just. Okay the the always buying new stuff mindset rather than buying for durability buying for life and i do agree also that it is millennial driven i've called it like millennial branding where you take a very basic product and you sell the upgraded luxury version of it and it comes in these different colors and look like nothing wrong if you want a nice 300 ounce water receptacle to carry around with you um but the idea of going out and buying 75 of them uh, is just a bit insane. It reminds me a little bit of there's this um, micro trend among young women called grand millennial style. And it's basically the idea that you take all the stuff your grandmother owned and you make it a little bit nicer, a little bit more coastal, and suddenly it's trendy. Um, and that's just so amusing to me because there are entire online boutiques that have popped up and influencers who have embraced this style. And they're really doing their best to make basically your grandma's stuff trendy and cool and give an upcharge for it when you could just go to the thrift, stop, the thrift store and find things that are exactly the same, but they're just not branded that way. Um, I don't know. It's just an interesting little psychology experiment almost in how we like things more when we give them a new name. Totally. And if you actually want to be like your grandparents uh, who in... in all likelihood, we're probably very thrifty and, you know, like didn't spend money on useless stuff, uh, then maybe follow in their footsteps that way. So that's my thoughts. Um, please, if you're a Stanley Cup owner, please chime in uh, with your with your incorrect counter opinion. Um, should we dive into some more serious stuff? Yeah, I have one that kind of walks the line. It's It's a humorous example, but I think it's right. So I'll dive into that. A few years ago, this video went viral of young student activists marching into the late Senator Dianne Feinstein's office and demanding climate action. And the video went viral because she really sort of uh, dropped the hammer on them and was hard on them and told them, look, you guys are marching in here. You're demanding I pass things, but you're not really clearly understanding how the legislative process works. You don't really have the background on the institution that I work in. You don't have background on my record. You don't know the things that I've done. If you had taken the time to learn these things, you would know that I'm actually a great ally of yours and that I've supported a lot of the things that you support. We're actually on the same team. Um, and she really put them in their place and said, you know, take the time to learn the institutions that you're trying to change. And at the time, she caught so much heat for it. I An mean, this video was moment. just everywhere you know senator feinstein yelling at kids but you know what i will defend her she was right she was right and those kids needed to hear that and i hope they remember it and i hope that other activists who saw it also learned a lesson because i think there's a lot to be said about youth activists who don't want to learn from people who have more experience than them and i say that as someone who has also been in that position obviously at acc we embrace youth activism but informed effective smart youth activism is the way to go. And I just think we're missing so much of that today. Yeah. And if you really care about what you're trying to do, then then you would care about what is the most effective form of that, right? Um, 
And the reality is, I mean, again, going back to the soup thing, going back to this idea, these walk-ins, these die-ins that climate activists have done, um, you are not pr putting yourself in the position of like a respected spokesperson for your issue. And my argument is that you are doing more harm to your issue than you're doing good. And so in a sense, you're not an activist. Like you, you are you are actively, whether you know it or not, actively working against the issue that you care to claim about um, and embarrassing the people who truly do care and want to make a difference, but you know aren't going to just do this kind of performative activism, as we call it. Well, and I think the line for me is, are you working in good faith, right? Are you truly an activist who is trying to build bridges with people and find common ground and get things done? Or are you an antagonist? Because there is a difference. Are you just sitting there calling out problems, making demands, and really being bratty and entitled? I think that's the key distinction between those two things. Yeah. Well, and there's also just this idea that when you criticize something, it's good to have an idea, even if it's not a perfect idea or, or you know, the, the most actionable idea. It's good to have an idea of what you want to see done. And if you're if you're going to someone like Diane Feinstein's office, who, you know, arguably did a lot of policy work in her time in the Senate, um, if you're going to her office and saying, you're not doing enough, and, and you know, and her response is, well, what, what do you even want me to do? And they're like, well, more. It's like, okay, so you actually don't have any idea of what you're asking for here. Yeah, well, and to your point, it's okay to make an observation and say, hey, this isn't working, we should do this better. And to have those ideas be sort of half-baked. But I think that's where the tact comes in. And are you coming in and saying, hey, there's this problem, fix it? Or are you coming in and saying, hey, I noticed this. We could probably do better. I'm not exactly sure how. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Um, and given that they none of these groups have had significant policy wins, <laughs> maybe that tells us all we need to know about how effective their activism is. Yeah. Well, and that, I mean, that goes back to point how many ounces of soup are we going to throw before this is all over gal i mean you know hundreds of thousands of gallons i'm sure uh just propping up big soup so this sort of leans into one of the things i want to talk about we talk about nuclear a lot and i've um i've made the claim before and maybe people will be upset with me for this but you know i invite them to come on the show um i've never had really an intelligent discussion with an anti-nuclear activist. Uh, I've had them in person. I've had them on social media. And it's always about the emotion behind how scary it is. It's often these un, uh, unsubstantiated claims about, you know, the waste or the ability for them to get built or blah, 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 blah. Um, and I've dubbed it a confident confidently being false uh, and uninformed about nuclear, a lot of these skeptics are. And I'm curious if you've seen that before as well. What stuck out to me is that I've invited a few people onto this show to debate nuclear and all of them have denied. So I don't know what that says about how strongly they, they feel against nuclear if they're not willing to come talk about it. But um, yeah. your thoughts on, on nuclear skeptics? It's a very interesting observation. Um, I have similar observations. Uh, for me, my entire family is pretty anti-nuclear, um, and I love my family. I have discussions with them all the time about environmental issues and about politics. 
nuclear is the one topic I just cannot make any headway on with them. And it doesn't matter how many videos I send them, how many op-eds or pieces I send them, how much evidence, overwhelming evidence I send them about how safe, reliable, and successful nuclear energy is. They just don't want to hear it. So I've definitely had the same experience. I don't know what it is. I think it's just um, a feelings don't care about your facts kind of moment. And, and again, I like, I'd, I'd love to have a conversation on this show about it. Um, but generally what I've found is that there is, you know, they'll point back to incidents that, um, of course, didn't have any fatalities or were very contained. I mean, other than like Chernobyl that you could point to. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know why nuclear has become the, one of the more divisive topics within the environmental movement. When you look at the fact that it is the most effective um, form from a from a carbon free standpoint of baseload power, and I, I think that's also where we get into the the details of like there's not a lot of nuance sometimes when we're debating energy. Um, you know, we're not anti wind, anti solar, but we are realistic about anti wind or realistic about wind and solar to say that you're not going to power the entire country on that. So if we need this baseload power, it's you know makes sense to be through nuclear. Yeah. I mean, like any energy source, there are trade-offs. And I also wonder how much of it has to do with this idea of, okay, we've rejected nuclear for so long. If we now suddenly say that it's okay, that means we have to admit that all those years we were wrong and that we wasted all of that time while simultaneously saying that the climate crisis is imminent and we need action now. So I wonder how much of it uh, that plays in. I've also heard arguments of, okay, look, if we're really going to do it, we're probably like 10 years behind and, you know, it's going to take a while to build and permit and all this stuff. To which my response is, okay, yep. Yeah, so you're talking about the same starting point that we were at with solar at its inception, with, you know, wind turbines at their inception, with electric vehicles at their inception. Like, yeah. Whenever things have a resurgence or starting for the first time, you're right. They're, they're not operational within a year. But we also, in those cases, we made those investments, both public and private investments in those, uh, in those technologies. And so are we really going to say, well, yeah, maybe the most effective thing, but gee, I guess we can't do anything for 10 years, so we might as well do nothing. That just goes against really America's entire ethos of just well, get it I mean, done. I think the idea is like, should we have done this 10 years ago? Absolutely. We didn't. So now here we are. Let's do it now so that 10 years from now, we're not looking back and saying, hey, we should have done it 10 years ago. You, you have to start somewhere. So true. And that's for all you New Year's resolutioners out there. You have to start somewhere. Um, side fact, I, I heard that like 16% of people forgot to set New Year's resolutions. I'm just, I don't really know how you forget to do that. Busy people have I, lives. I guess, but it's just weird around. to be like. I don't know. It's just you know, it's one thing to not set one. It's another thing to just forget. Um, okay. So, what else do you have on your list? Yeah, uh, this one. I'm I'm curious to your take on this one. We have an ongoing uh, war with journalists here sometimes, and I think the one I want to point out is this idea of media sensationalism and the way that. Um, movement on climate change and policy on climate change is so unfairly covered. 
Um, the number of times I am speaking with a reporter and the way they end up framing the story actually disincentivizes bridge building and disincentivizes people who aren't usually at the table from coming to the table. It's just so frustrating that the media only wants to cover things in a way that's going to generate clicks, but not necessarily solve problems. Um, and I really do think that that's where so much of the division on this issue stems from. I would love to just see some genuine good faith reporting on climate change every once in a while. Yeah. Um, and there, so much. There's like, there's double standards in media. There's activists in media, some of which will admit that they're activist journalists and others will not. My bigger take on just the media challenges in general is by and large, the media has caused its own problems. Um, whether it's their cover coverage of energy and environment or politics or just anything, right? Like they don't own up to mistakes. They don't own up to, you know, they'll begrudgingly make a correction. And that just doesn't incentivize people to trust them. Uh, and, and, and that's why you have this idea of the traditional media and the, the, the digital kind of more rogue media and all these different, you know, different types of media. Um, but I really think that if you had a, a media organization that from the top down says, we don't do the bias, right? We don't do the bias and any of our journalists who want to insert bias, they're not going to be our journalists anymore. Or if we get something wrong, we're going to publicly admit it. We're going to apologize and we're going to say that we're going to do better. Like that would be so huge, but they're, they're in their own way. Yeah, absolutely. Fingers crossed it improves. We'll see. Yeah. Um, if, if any journalists out there, uh, any aspiring journalists, you know, you, you've got a big, I don't know, that's a crazy industry to be entering right now, but um, hopefully some, some good folks are, are coming into it. Um, I have one that's sort of in that vein of media, but it's more toward a rhetoric. And I've been trying to figure out how to phrase it. Um, but it's this idea, I, I mean, you and I have talked a lot about overcorrections that happen and rhetorically speaking, I think in the environmental space, there's an overcorrection on both sides from both what the problem is, but also what the solutions are, right? And, and the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. So just take climate change in general, for example. The left will look at uh, the reports and the models and say, we have five years to change how we're going to live or else we're all doomed. Oh, and by the way, the only way to do it is to institute this huge government program that, you know, by the way, is more social policy than it is environmental policy. Whereas the other uh, extreme on the right will say, not only is climate change not an issue, but I want more CO2. I want our atmosphere to be like 99% CO2. I think that'd be really fun. And then I want us to drill uh everywhere, including in the middle of a nursery, right? Like there's this wide variance and extremism on both sides. And I guess this is sort of our whole purpose for existing at ACC, but it really just annoys me that we can't even get away from that to the middle a little bit more and say, there's a problem, but we don't need to go crazy on it. Like we can work out a yeah. solution here. Well, I think on the right, um, we sometimes tend to go into that antagonistic 
place, right? We just want to own the libs or we just want to get our zingers across. And it becomes less and less about the substance of the policy that we're discussing and more about just proving that we have the right position. On the left, what I see is actually something that I had written down as one of my climate rants, which is this idea of making perfect the enemy of good. And we always want to do the biggest possible climate package and the biggest possible um, you know, action that we can. And I think we would be so much more effective as a movement that cares about the climate if we could just take the small wins and continue building on them until we have a strong foundation. Um, I, I see incrementalism as a very good thing. That is apparently a very unpopular opinion when it comes to the climate space. Um, but I think it speaks exactly to what you're talking about. The, the other thing, just more generally, uh, is I think it's always important to remember why we care about the environment. And I think you and I have very similar reasons. It's like we care about the environment because we care about the people who live on the earth and live in the environment. Um, and we often see these sort of degrowth uh, messages that come up with um, with environmentalism of like to to um, to to fix the environment, we need to have fewer people on the earth. We need to return, you know, all these spaces back to just uh, to, to just raw nature. And we cut out the most important reason for wanting to protect the environment, which is to protect the people and, and, and provide a home for people. So that's been annoying as well as, as I, as I see that rhetorically happen. Yeah. I'm so glad that you brought that one up because it's not something I wrote down, but it is something that's always top of mind for me, which is just how anti-human the environmental movement has been at times. Um, we should be fighting for the environment because we care about our communities and we care about our families and our friends and the other inhabitants of the world. And we want to see a beautiful, pristine planet for these communities to thrive in. Um, and instead, we're talking about completely eliminating these communities so that the environment can thrive without us. And I just think that's a totally wrong equation. Amen. What else is on your list? I, I've reached the end of mine for this episode, but I, you may have some more. Uh, I have one final rant on my list, which is just, I think that people too often lose sight of the fact that climate change is a global challenge and the United States has a responsibility to lead. However, if we are the only ones doing anything, it doesn't make any sense. So we have to look at this from a global perspective. And I would love to see more mainstream climate activists uh, reckon with that and understand that we can't do it alone. It's not just what our Congress and our president and our fossil fuel companies decide to do going to take everyone. Um, and this is a good place to start because of how we're positioned in the world, but it, it can't just be us. Amen. I, I was on a, a virtual panel toward the end of last year where some of these people are just harping on, you know, how the U.S. has not made any progress and how, you know, we're still one of the leading polluters and all this stuff. And I chimed in and I'm like, hey, guys, uh, so we actually have reduced emissions significantly and we are hitting targets and we've done it without government action and all this like good stuff. And they're like, yeah, well, we could do more. And it's like, OK, so what 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 can the other countries of the world do? You know, do you have, you have thoughts yeah. on that? And I think that's, that's such a fallacy because we can always do more. There's always more that sure. could be done. Um, and I think that that goes back to making perfect the enemy of good. What we're doing is good. We should and can do more, um, but everyone else needs to pull their weight too. Perfect. Um, so this has given people insight into uh, all the issues that we would like to see addressed if, if it could be done by end of week next week. That'd be great. 
Um, our email is open for, for those solutions. Um, but we also want to invite, uh, again, any of you listening to submit your own climate rant. Uh, and you could do that by submitting it to comingclean.acc.eco. Uh, and, and we'd love to hear it. In fact, uh, we're going to have our producer put in right now an example of one that we just recently got. Let's pause, pause. So uh, we want to hear from you. Submit those to comingclean at acc.eco. Danny, thank you so much for joining. I thought it, this feels great to just get things off the chest and 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 kick off this uh, uh, this very informative segment of the podcast. I think. Thanks for having me. It uh, felt like a therapy session among friends. Love to see it. Perfect. Do you have any action uh, items, call to action for the people listening? Steven, don't ask me that. No, I never have. I never have those. Okay. Uh, I, I will offer for people to uh, to join ACC, be part of the solution, acc.eco. We'd love to have you as a member. Danny, thanks for joining us this week. Thanks, Stephen. Hello, podcast. Uh, longtime listener, first-time ranter. And I have to say, my number one climate rant, my biggest pet peeve is I cannot, I am so over Gen Z and millennials, frankly, using capitalism as the scapegoat for everything and anything, frankly, not just climate change anything everything again but it's just so frustrating especially when there's this entire movement of people that already know that innovation dematerialization like we need capitalism it is quite literally the only way to get us anywhere and yet there's an entire gener generation convinced of its evil and feels really frustrating and sometimes it's like what do we even how do we even move forward from here you know as always, thank you for listening to the Coming Clean podcast. We want to get to know you more and be in your queue every other week when we release episodes. So to do that, whatever episode or whatever podcast platform you're on right now, make sure to subscribe. And then if you feel extra generous, give us a review. We'd love to hear uh, what you think of the show. And until our next episode, take care. And before we jump, the Coming Clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.